This show is sponsored by FHE Health and their Shatterproof program for first responders. If you are struggling, you don't have to anymore. Links and details are in the show notes. I am so happy that my good friend Rhonda Kelly is back on the show, a retired firefighter in Colorado of many years. She might have left the first responder field, but she continues to give back every day as the executive director of the All Clear Foundation, a foundation for first responders everywhere. You do not want to miss this episode with Rhonda Kelly, next on the CJ Evolution Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the CJ Evolution Podcast. Patrick here, host and creator. Thank you for listening. We know you got many options, but thank you for spending a little bit of your valuable time with me. For you out there who is the first responder, the criminal justice professional, thank you for what you do. You have much support. I don't care what anybody says out there. The vast majority of people out there support you. Yes, I wish they were more vocal. Please be safe. Keep giving 100%. Please take care of yourself mentally and physically. And above all, come home safe. What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had 30 days uh, of counseling, working with therapists, working with a psychiatrist, getting the neuro treatment, doing the breath therapy that's done here. The transformation that happens with the clients is really humbling to be able to work around and see because people are getting better here. And it just shows that there's a need for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. They should be afforded the ability to come get help when they need help. It has gotten better, but we still have a long way to go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I'm very excited to have uh, this wonderful woman on the show yet again. She's been on a couple times, and every time she comes on, we have just wonderful conversations. Uh, and she's doing amazing work with uh, the, her foundation, and she's a former first responder. She's going to talk about that. My good friend, Rhonda Kelly. Hi, Pat. Thanks so much for the invite. It's great uh, to see you again. Oh, it is so, so good to see you. I, I texted you. We were supposed to have a show yesterday. I texted you because... You know, I'm, I live, obviously, you, you know, I live in Arizona now and I came to Colorado for a few days and it was just horrible weather. And I was like, Rhonda, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with the weather here in Colorado, but <laughs> we had we had tornado warning and I grew up with it. So I know better. You know, it's crazy in the summer sometimes, but uh, I, I'm, I appreciate your flexibility. And it's so good to see you and talk to you all the time. And I'm, I'm so glad you're you're doing well. And for the listeners who don't know who Rhonda Kelly is, she's, she's about to tell you. Rhonda, go ahead. Oh, thanks. Well, I am a former firefighter paramedic, um, former prior to that uh, career and volunteer EMT. I am also a former ER and psych ER nurse. In 2017, I, or 2016, I founded a national mental health initiative for emergency responders and their families called Responder Strong. 
in 2020, I rolled that into a national nonprofit called All Clear Foundation, where our mission is to improve the overall well-being and longevity of responders and their yeah. family members. And I also work on the side for global medical response as their head of uh, health, wellness, and resilience. That's a GMR for those people who don't know. GMR is huge. It's a huge company, about thirty thousand employees in every state, correct? And in global 30, metal, thirty-eight thousand. Thirty-eight thousand, and there's many different uh, entities that are pretty popular that fall under the GMR umbrella, correct? Exactly. So GMR is Air and Ground EMS. It's also fire service. They own Rural Metro Fire, who does some municipal and a lot of industrial fire support. They also own other companies like CrowdRx, who provides event medical, Burning Man, Coachella, etc. Um, Nurse Navigation Line, which is a dispatch um, associated service that helps triage people who don't necessarily need to go to the ER and get them routed to the appropriate resources. And the list goes on. GMR really provides a comprehensive array of emergency response solutions. And, and I love it because, you know, GMR's reach is not only big, but you're helping so many different uh, first responders in, in, in obviously different states, you know, all exactly. around the continental United States. And, and tell us, I mean, and all clear, of course, is is an amazing foundation too. I mean, what was the catalyst, Rhonda? I mean, what, 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 why did you go this route? I know your background, you know, firefighter, retired firefighter in Colorado. Um, what was the catalyst that said for you that said, you know, or you know, I'm gonna, I want to, I want to create this foundation. I, I want to go this route. What, what, what made you do it? Well, about ten years into my career, I was realizing I saw changes in myself. I saw changes yeah. in my coworkers not just the firefighters, the medics, and the EMTs I worked with, but also the nurses and the PAs and the ER staff that I was working with, the ER physicians, and started to really notice that this was associated with the job and why was this happening. And about that same time, it was 2011 or 2012, I became the health and safety officer for my department, Aurora Fire. We knew at that time that suicide was one of our leading occupational killers, not just in the fire service, but across emergency response branches. But we still weren't talking openly about it. And we weren't actively doing anything to address the root of the problem. At that time, Matt Vogel, who was then the, head, uh, the deputy director of the National Center for Depression, reached out to me and said, I really want to work with firefighters. What do you need? So I shared with him our, our plight and told him what we really need is to stop working within isolation with the isolations of mm -hmm. our agencies the isolation of our branches we need to teach responders that empathy and compassion are required skill sets for this work but they are also pathways for injury and how to recognize and protect themselves from those stress injuries and we also need to address our culture the cultures we've operated in occupationally have traditionally been very eat their own resulting yeah. in the response to anybody who admitted mental or emotional impact was a resounding, you must be weak, you can't handle it, you should get out. And I believe all three of those factors are what contributes to the uh, insane amount of not only suicidal ideation and attempts that we see, but all the other forms of stress injury leading up to it. Yeah. De uh, yeah. Depression, anxiety, substance misuse is a failed attempt to cope with trauma, domestic violence, relationship issues. So he said, sounds like a great idea. I have no idea how to fund it until, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. We've all heard that at some point in our career. Sounds like great. How do we get the money? 
Right. And he was very resourceful. He went on to create an organization called the National Mental Health Initiative. Also, um, no, National Mental Health Innovation Center. Sorry, it's a long name at the University of Colorado's medical school, CU Anschutz. When that happened, he gave me a call and said, I think we can take the conversation to the next level. I have funding. That's when we jumped up Responder Strong. He gave me the platform and the latitude to create it. I left Aurora Fire at that point at 17 years in to really grow Responder Strong. We had a lot of success for two reasons. One, we operated across branch boundaries, knowing if we want to change our culture, we have to work together. And two, we really engaged our allies, the researchers, the educators, the clinicians, the foundations, who really wanted to work with our population, but either didn't have the keys to the door, didn't speak the right language, or just didn't understand our culture enough to be effective operating with us. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a great format. We've seen a lot of other organizations adopt that format. And I think it's the way to go. The third piece is that we involve the families. And I know you and Shatterproof in particular are very interested in incorporating the family in education and awareness process, Absolutely. and also in the healing and then the proactive support processes. Yeah, I mean, that's, and we were talking before, you know, because that's, I mean, the, I mean, the first responders, I mean, the focus is on the first responders, uh, not not just with FHE and Shatterproof, but but every place, uh, it seems like the focus is on the first responder, which is great. But the qu the questions I get now a lot when I go talk to people and meet with people, Rhonda, and you, you probably do too, is, okay, what are we doing more for families? Because, you know, the, the first responder, they go and they get treatment wherever that is, and then they come back and the, and the families are still dealing with the, the trauma and all the emotions that, you know, got their first responder into treatment and the aftermath. Now it's almost like, okay, how do we address the issue with families? Exactly. And I love the saying that families wear an invisible uniform. I yeah. think that's a very apt description for what happens in that responders, no matter how we try to not bring the job home with us, we do. Yeah. And we also change in response to the job. One of the big challenges we see is the skill sets we're taught on the job, the things we get praised and promoted for. Yeah, those don't work so well in a home environment, but we're never taught how to turn them off. Yeah. And many times this starts to be the source of fracture between us and our families, tends to start eroding the sanctuary we have at home. And it's not malicious. It's not intentional. Oftentimes we as responders are trying to protect the family from the worst of the worst that we've seen. And nobody taught us that you can talk about how you feel without talking about what you saw, what you smelled, what you heard, what you, yeah, what you witnessed, what you did. Um, That's such a, and, such a good point. Such a good point. Right? Well, and families oftentimes in that first family, second family juxtaposition can rightfully so feel like they're being excluded. When we come home and we, it's clear something's wrong with us we're angry, we're frustrated, we're upset, whatever. And our answer is, no, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong. Family feels like, okay, what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing are not aligned. There's a lot of dissonance here. Then a coworker calls us and we're a million miles an hour on the phone talking about everything. So the family sees us having emotional intimacy. With then they're like, why, yeah, why, why aren't you talking to me? I'm your wife or I'm your spouse or, or partner. Exactly. And when neither side is equipped with the understanding or the language, the words to talk about it, it rapidly devolves into an argument or it can, especially 
if the responder is stressed out or the significant other is stressed out because he or she's been home with the kids or with the, the daily life. So we see that there's a lot of challenges there. And then we also see with responders, um, lots of times because we're called to witness the worst of the worst. And in our stressed minds, we can take this small portion of the spectrum of human interaction and expand it to think people suck and the world is unsafe. So we come home and when our family doesn't share this perception, we can be kind of condescending with, well, you just don't get it. You don't understand. I have to protect you. And when we think we're being protective, quite often it comes across as being controlling, yeah. rightfully so from the other perspective, um, you know, things like, you know, you can't go to that slumber party. Do you know what happens at slumber parties? No, you're not going to the park alone. Yeah. Do you know who hangs out at parks? And, yeah. and um, I mean, there's more things that just can really fragment the, re the intimate relationships at home that the family doesn't see us uh, sees the, the the second family, the the work family, as being more privileged, have more access to us, that we respect them more, or we engage with them more. So there's there's that aspect, and that's just yeah. one of the the yeah. ways that the family can suffer as a result but, of that. But I love what you said about, and it, and I was thinking about like using me for an example, because instead of talking about my feelings and not the incident or the critical incident. I could, I never talked about my feelings. I, I would just isolate, which is wrong. And then, you know, just kind of ignore people for a while. But I love what you said. And that's a really good point. I mean, you can engage and you can talk about, you know, how you're feeling without getting into the specifics of what you saw, you know, but I, I think that goes back into what you mentioned before. You're exactly right. That just that culture that we, we foster in a first responder environment. And I learned it very young in the military and then it was carried out to law enforcement. You probably learned it in, in the fire service. You, you just, the best thing to do is just don't say anything, which is exactly. not, which is not sustainable as you know. No. And many times it comes from a good intention. I don't yeah. want to bring that crap into my home. Yeah. I don't want to burden my spouse or my significant other with it. I want to keep my kids safe. I mean, there's lots of good reasons, but to your point, that can start to narrow and narrow the space where we feel comfortable. And many times we see, responders when they're getting overwhelmed just want to go back to work so they're listening to the scanner they're watching the news they're you know on speed dial with co-workers they're picking up overtime they're doing trades whatever because they want to be back in this environment where they feel like the metrics for success are black and white pass fail yeah. the expectations are very clearly outlined you feel like you're contributing you feel like you're doing something you feel like you're around people who understand you and when we have less capacity for complexity because we're so stressed, we tend to gravitate towards where we feel better and where we feel less challenged. Yeah. And, and and that detracts from the family life too. And it's not just communication, which is huge. It's okay. I'm going to come back, you know, from from a bad day at work uh, as a first responder. I'm not going to talk, but I, I am going to grab a drink, and, and I am going to decompress. And, and slowly, that drink turns into one or two. Now you. You know, I mean, I, the, I guess the point, you know, this Rhonda and the listeners, you know, they know too. I mean, it's gonna, you know, all that stress and and it's it's usually gonna manifest somewhere else. I mean, it's gonna come out somewhere else, whether excessive drinking, like it was in my case, isolation, depression. So it does help with with, you know, just beginning with a conversation. You know, I feel I, I feel sad today, Rhonda. I I just want you to listen. You know, I'm not gonna tell you specifics about what I had to deal with, but I, I feel sad. I feel depressed. And, and, you know, these are the reasons why. 
you know, and, you know, and, and I think I'm not saying that's going to cure everything, but learning how to talk better and, and learning how to communicate more, uh, yeah, that's a good start. Well, and we both know that lots of times the misuse of alcohol starts with, I need to make a state change and I don't know how to. And when we don't have the words or the internal awareness, the, the internal scene size up to recognize, oh, I'm feeling angry. Why am I feeling angry? Mm, it's not really anger. It's fear. And what am I afraid of when we don't have the ability to go down that pathway, either because we're not equipped with a self-awareness or the, the words or because we're just so exhausted, we can't. It's so easy to pick up that drink to get a state change chemically doesn't resolve anything psychologically, doesn't help us, just makes us feel better in the moment. And that's such an easy go-to. And we see that, you know, across the board in emergency response and healthcare workers, alcohol is not only legal, easy to access and culturally condoned, it's culturally reinforced in many yeah. of the response cultures. You're the odd one out if you're not drinking. Um, it's a point of bonding. It is a point of humor. And it can be really destructive when, like any tool, it's used inappropriately. And um, have you seen or heard um, Alcohol Minimalist podcast, Molly Watts? No. Oh, that's, my God. That sounds very interesting. I, I, I think you'd be very interested in it. I'll send you the information. So we interviewed her at the, the foundation or talked to her at the foundation. And I really like the work she's doing to help people establish a more peaceful relationship with alcohol. And she goes into the whole, why are you drinking? Um, and takes the moral judgment out of it. She's like, it's not good or bad. Let's just talk about what you're trying to get to, why you're doing this. And then are there other things that serve you better? And I just really like the accessible way she does it. And I see she's got a huge following on, I believe she's on Apple Podcasts. Uh, she wrote a book. And um, I'm hearing from a lot of people that, oh, I like this because I don't feel so bad about myself. And I think that's the other thing that is common in responders and it's driven by our culture is that sense of shame. I should just be able to do this and perform at my best all the time without any support. We're the rescuers. I shouldn't need rescuing. And if I'm falling short of this standard I have for myself and that our culture set for us then I'm, I should be shamed. And I don't want to tell anybody because I don't want them to see it. And Absolutely. the other, right. And the other big thing I see is in response to that, responders will beat themselves up in this self-beration and the self-flagellation they tell themselves is taking responsibility. It's being accountable. No, it's not. You're shaming yourself. And that's yeah. going to move you further and further away from what you need. And that's one of the things I liked about Alcohol Minimalist. And she's good about saying, if you are in the throes of addiction, if you are struggling with physiologic and physical addiction, this isn't the right program for you. If you are misusing alcohol or other substances, let's let's have a conversation. Yeah, to cope. Yes, you know, exactly. To, you know, to cope or, or to take the, you know, the, 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 the whatever stress off temporarily. You know, yeah, I'll have to check them out. Thank you for that. Uh, her yeah. out uh, and their podcast. I mean, I'd love to have her on. If I can oh, get yeah. Her on. She's, yeah, she's great. I think you guys would have an amazing conversation. How do you think outreach is going, Rhonda, with, with you know, reaching the first responder community these days with about what we're talking about, about, you know, mental health, addiction? I mean, do you think it's, I, I, I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, we, <laughs> no, we, we, do, we, we do a lot of, Outreach, FHE and Shatterproof. I know all clear does, GMR does. I mean, how do you think that's, 
How did first responders respond to that? Well, it's, I love that you asked that. So back when we founded Responder Strong in 2016, we really took the sledgehammer approach to talking about suicidality because mm -hmm. it was the elephant in the room that nobody wanted to talk about. And we thought if we don't approach this directly, um, we're not going to be able to get a, a constructive conversation and movement affected. So we talked about suicide in and out, in and out all day. And um, people were resistant. Then we started to talk about the stress injury continuum and started to talk about things like domestic violence and substance misuse. And pretty much across the board, the message we got was, ah, can we go back and talk about suicidality? Because that's not near <laughs> as stigmatized as these other things. Yeah, and, exactly. And that's been a big part of our message, not to excuse any behaviors, but to explain what's happening behind them, the process. And as you know, we adopted in All Clear and Responder Strong the stress injury formation model. Mm -hmm in recognition that a lot of our mental and emotional, but also our physical challenges are a direct result of chronic elevation of cortisol, chronic overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system, and that there is no shame to be had in any of this, only understanding because this is a physiologic process. So the high cortisol, that's what's contributing to our obscene rates of diabetes, hypertension, Central adiposity, that spare obesity, tire, obesity, obesity. Uh, yeah, all that stuff. Oh, exactly. And then you compound that with sleep deprivation, which is a known carcinogen, and you, you launch off on the whole um, cancer pathway. But those things, um, the changes in the brain that happen in the, the presence of chronically elevated cortisol, chronically overwhelmed and overstressed states, that can lead to depression, to anxiety to the desperation that we reach out for the first thing that's available to numb, to cope, to get through the moment. And it's not weakness, it's not poor morals, it's it's desperation. Yeah. And and that pathway, if we continue down it, and it's not only linear, it's not always linear, can lead to suicidal ideation. And all of this is caused by this overwhelm of our coping mechanisms. And the message that we really like to spread is okay, let's go back and talk about What's the single best thing you can do to improve the quality of life? It's learn how to manage stress better. Absolutely. You are subject to a lot more stress than the average person just by nature of what you do for a living. So you deserve more support. You deserve more training. You deserve more awareness um, around how to protect yourself. So in, in that line, we started to see more openness towards recognizing, okay, I'm struggling and I don't need to struggle. It's not glamorous to be struggling. Um, I, I no longer buy into this martyrdom aspect of the, the emergency response culture. I'm not willing to sacrifice my life for what I do. I can do it well and still enjoy my life. But I saw that that was really accelerated during COVID when things just got so crazy that people, I mean, if they didn't realize they were stressed, they weren't paying attention. Um, and, and I think with responders, a lot of people not only began to realize we were being asked to do incredible things. Um, we're, we're overwhelmed and it has to do with what we're doing, not who we are and not our, our value. It's, it's not weakness. So on the tail end of COVID, and I think this is embedded in the greater social openness towards talking about mental health challenges, responders have started to reach out at far greater levels than I thought they would. We're, we're easy a decade ahead of where I thought we'd be with yeah. normalization. And we're in the interesting situation now where the demand is outpacing the culturally competent resources we have available yeah. in large part because the mental health providers are overwhelmed with everybody across society reaching out 
but also many of them are taking their own advice now and starting to have better boundaries and restrict the number of patients they're taking. And facilities across the country are full up. Their censuses are, are full because so many people are reaching out. So we're in a unique position where the demand is exceeding our resources right now, which requires more skilled navigation of resources and also creation of additional culturally competent ones. Absolutely. Do you, do you think some of it, Rhonda, is just the newer generation that is coming into the first responder field, that there are the newer, younger folks, firemen, you know, firefighters, you know, all, all under the umbrella of first responders. Do you think the newer generation is, is basically coming in? And it's a lot easier for the newer, newer generation to say, look, I'm struggling than it is the older generation like me, you know, somebody who's in their fifties where, you know, it, it was a culture thing. It was just the way we were brought up. You just, you know, you just don't talk about stuff where I think the younger generation is more willing to come forward. Not all of them, but I, I think a lot of them are more willing to, to come forward and say, look, I, I, I don't, I don't live to work. I, I want to work to live kind of thing. Exactly. Um, you know, I, right. I think, I think they're, they're, I think that's, that's a good thing with, with the younger generation. I'm not saying for the people who are listening, I'm not saying, you know, older people like me are, are not willing to come forward. I'm just saying that in my experience, when I was still on the job, the younger generation is more willing to come forward. Oh, absolutely. So a lot of the pitching of our mental health curriculum in particular, we change the pitch for who we're talking to because it has benefits across the board, but people have different areas of focus, different priorities, different areas that they want to target. So when we're talking to responders, we talk about, do you want to have a higher quality of life? Do you want to have a better relationship with your family? Do you want to have a long and healthy career followed by a long and healthy retirement? When we're talking to leaders, we ask them, are you having a hard time with recruiting and retention? And the answer is always yes. Um, you know, that's epic levels right now too. Yeah. And we, we touch on that generational aspect with millennials and Gen Z coming in. They're not willing to suffer 30 years no. and um, the way that was the cultural expectation for responders when we came on. They want to know what's in this for me. Where is my work-life balance? Um, why should I do this? How am I going to be a better person for doing this? And I think those are all extremely valid questions. And I think what the way our organization, our operational cultures are going to need to change to keep them interested, to recruit them and to keep them engaged is healthy for us overall. It's they're going to demand some of the changes that we've been very, very slow to make. And I think to your point, we see with incumbents, with responders who've been in five, 10, 20, 30 years, there is an, an increasing awareness. And I, I do believe the destigmatization is rooted in awareness. Oh, this, this is because of the job. And I'm having a very normal human reaction to some pretty abnormal experiences yeah, and absolutely. exposures. And um, I, think, I think it's a good thing. No, I think it's a wonderful thing. I do think that, and you know this, Rhonda, and the listeners probably do too. I mean, every organization is different with their cultures. I think some or organizations are better than others. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, another thing is is that, you know, I think gone are the days. Um, I mean, I, I think it still exists in, in some aspects, but gone are the days where people are going to stay at the same job for 30 years. Yeah. You know, and, and to your point, I mean, if, if a first responder doesn't feel like they have support from the higher ups or their you know, the, the, the brass or whatever you want to call it in one organization that they're not getting the support they need. I, I think they're more apt to jump and go to a different organization that has a better culture. And, and, you know, because I think that's one thing that people don't understand is, 
organizations like the public sector is the same as the private sector. Organizations are, are going to have their own culture. Some chiefs, some, you know, fire chiefs are, are all in on mental health and taking care of their people and others, not so much. They might walk the, you know, walk the walk, but, or talk the talk, but they're not walking the walk. I mean, I mean, do you think that's true? I mean, that's my opinion. Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you're right. People don't feel like they're tied to their job or to their career, um, that they have the options to, to move and to go someplace that's better for them, that's healthier, that they enjoy. And that we're going to have to change because the old culture doesn't appeal. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like the, I mean, you were, you were, uh, you know, you're in the fire service for, for many years. It always seems, and I want your perspective, it always seems like the, the fire service, I mean, not that they don't have problems, that they don't have, you know, service members that are suffering, but it's always seems like they, they had a, they had the right approach when it came to taking care of themselves better than, than, you know, their, their colleagues in law enforcement. I mean, you know, because, and maybe it's just a structure of the fire service, you know, you're on for a certain amount of time, you're off for a certain amount of time, whereas law enforcement's always 24 seven, you know, they're always that, that hyper vigilant state where the firefighters are, they're, you know, they're out to, you know, the firehouse for a while and then they, they're doing stuff and then they get a call and then they're in that state and then they come back and decompress. You well, know what I mean? Well, and you know, I think there are obviously a lot of similarities in the occupational exposures for what calls they go to, um, what they see in the society and, and what they're asked to do. Um, there are also some very big differences. And one of the big ones is um, the amount of personal danger on the average call. Law enforcement, that's higher than it is for fire. On fire, on structure fires, it's probably higher for fire, a lot less yeah, for law yeah. enforcement. But the big difference is fire departments tend to roll with three or four people on a crew not always, but usually. So that camaraderie, that team sensation point, yeah. can really be a buffer, can be that support if the crew has a healthy culture, to your point. If the crew is supportive, if they're bonded, if they're forward thinking, they're self-aware. It can easily go the other way too, where the crew is toxic in its own right and being with other people is no longer better than being isolated. There was this big study actually now I just thought of with Boston Fire. Um, Dr. Hamrick, he was a former Boston firefighter, went out, got his MD, came back as the department's physician. He and some others did a, a survey and they were able to show that, you know, it's best for us to be in a positive social environment. That's where we are, are better able to handle adversity in, in the context of calls. And this was all based in Boston fire stations. But it is far better to be in isolation to feel alone than it is to be in a toxic social environment. So yeah, the negative yeah. crews, the the ones that weren't supportive, that were backstabbing, that were hostile, that was more corrosive and destructive than feeling isolated. And I, I always thought that was an interesting yeah, story. Because I hear from so many cop friends who are like, well, you guys all buddy up, you're all together. It's like, yeah, but 24 hours is a long time and it's who you're together with that, that really determines your mental health and that, the course of that shift. So I think there are differences. I see yeah. not a whole lot of difference between the reported rates of suicidal ideation and suicide attempts between law enforcement and fire. I think they are different experiences, but very similar outcomes because it's it's stressful. And both cultures have been slow to support the human behind the badge or the uniform. Yeah. yeah and it makes sense, you know, obviously with the fire crew, they're showing up together, they're living together, whereas most 
most agencies now in law enforcement, they're single man cars. Mm-hmm. You know, unless you're with NYPD or LAPD or some big huge department like that, they're two man cars. But yeah, I mean, if you have a healthy culture at a PD, you know, you're like you said, you're 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 you know, you're kind of missing that camaraderie with your fellow officers. But if you have a toxic environment, then you're you're excited to get into that solo car by yourself and <laughs> be trapping around. <laughs> Exactly. I'm out. Yeah. I'm I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. So if if you if you were giving advice, and I know you talked to a lot of first responders, but if you if you were giving advice to somebody who's listening right now about uh, getting into the fire service or any first responder field, I mean, what what advice would you give them? It's a very difficult time, as you know, in the first responder field. Not just cops, but fire and corrections dispatchers who are often forgotten. Uh, right. People are thinking about doing that. Corrections. Well, what advice would you give them? I know that's kind of a broad question, but um, what advice? Wow, that's a great question. And, you know, I think back over my life sometimes and wonder, would I have chosen to take the same path knowing if I knew then what I know now, would I have chosen the same path? And to be honest, I don't know. I loved my time in the fire service. I love the camaraderie. I still have very close relationships from it. It was a lot of fun. There were a lot of terrible things. There were many challenges. But when I look at what's out there, you know, I've, I've come to realize, oh, what I'm really interested in is taking care of the caregiver. So sometimes I think, should I have gone into neuroscience? Should I have gone into psychology? Should I have gone into leadership development? But all of that would not have the impact that I feel like people like you and I can have now because we have the lived experience. So, yeah. So I I feel like, and I'm wandering around this question. I know that (laughs) I guess I would occur, I I would, it would occur to me to ask people, well, what do you really want out of life? What do you enjoy? What are your values? And um, I see a lot of responders get into response work because they have that rescuer inclination you and I both know that helping professions tend to have higher than average A scores. So uh, A scores, adverse childhood experiences, for those who aren't familiar, um, we know that the helper personality, the rescuer personality, often comes from people who overcame pretty significant adversity on their yeah. own as kids. And they tend to grow up and want to continue to rescue people, to help people, which is fantastic. But I would also encourage people coming into it what's your motivation for getting into this work? And is it to try to heal yourself? Is it to try to deal with the wounds that you encountered as a child? Maybe there's better ways to do that up front and then decide if this is what you want to get into because these are challenging professions. Um, Whether you are a nurse, a firefighter, an EMT, a medic, a dispatcher, sheriff's department, law enforcement, even search and rescue, ski patrol, Uh know yourself, know why you're trying to get into this. And is this going to get you what you want? And if it is, awesome, go for it. If it isn't, yeah. I I love that answer. You know, I love that answer because, you know, so many times, oh, you're going to want to save the world. Okay, all right. You're you're not going to save the world. Uh, And I hate to sound cynical, but you know that. I mean, it's maybe you can impact your little part of the world and and where you're at to some degree. But I love your answer because it's like, yeah, know thyself. Mm -hmm. What, What do you want? You know, if you just want to go run and gun and go 90 miles an hour in a fire truck, I tell you what, that's not it. Right. Exactly. You know, if you want to kick in doors all the time and be a squat guy 24 seven, that's not it. Well, and know that what you want might change over time. So exactly. Knowing yourself once you've had this experience and you know more. 
going to uh, Maya Angelou, who I love. We do the best we can. And when we know better, we do better. So when we learn after five years or eight years, oh, okay, I got, I fulfilled that need. I've learned a lot. I see now that I really have my interest here. Maybe that's when you transition to something else. Maybe you, yeah. you don't just jump ship. You roll the knowledge and the skills you've developed into a, another parallel path. Yeah. I mean, I don't regret anything I did in my career, mm -hmm. but I, 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 and I love being a cop, Rhonda. It's just that I, towards the end of my career, um, I wasn't passionate about it anymore. And I'm, I'm okay. I'm comfortable saying with that, but I'm passionate about what I do now, because now I'm in a position where I can say, look, I mean, I went in where, uh, you know, I was going to try to change the world in the end, the world changed me. Love and, that. you know, I, and, you know, the things I dealt with, things you deal with now they're, they're teaching blocks and they're, you use that to to reach out to people and say, look, you know, don't, don't do what I did, right. you know, learn how to talk better, learn how to communicate. Like you said, with your, 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 your family, you know, it's okay to talk about your feelings. I didn't learn about any of that stuff. So I'm very passionate about helping first responders. I know you do with all clear and GMR about educating people more, especially young first responders. Look, take care of yourself. All right. This is not, I understand it's your world right now. You live it and breathe it, but you have another life after your life now. If you, exactly. are, if you are able to survive the first responder career, you know, and you, you, we're all living longer, most of us. So you have a life after that. Right. Don't, don't take things too seriously. Exactly. And have yes. a, and have a backup plan. You know, Rhonda, I don't have to tell you, you're one call away, God forbid, with uh, an injury or God forbid something worse where you have to leave the first responder field. Well, and you know, that's something we talk a lot about through our work are the financial challenges of the job. And Absolutely. many responders pick up a second or third job and they default to what they know. So it's usually, uh, you know, if you're law enforcement, you do a security job. If you're fire, you volunteer or you're working for an ambulance company. If you're an EMT or a medic, you work for another ambulance company. So you are in effect, you're, while you think you're improving your financial situation, what you're doing is increasing your exposure to the trauma of the job while decreasing your recovery time. And you are not developing any other ancillary skills so that if you do have that horrible call where you go out on disability or you get terminated or you just get burned out and you choose to leave, you don't have anything else that you can do. do try and do something that's different, that expands who you are and changes how you identify. Because we see so many times with career responders who really identify with their role as a responder that when retirement hits them up, they, they now realize I've lost my sense of identity, my meaning, my purpose, Absolutely. my structure, my focus, my busyness. And all of a sudden those compartment doors that have been holding back all the crap from the career, well, those start to creep open. And uh, you know, it's, it's really unhealthy for responders and responders don't see it that way. We've been taught that, oh no, you're all in to your words. Yeah, I, I live and breathe fire. I live and breathe law enforcement or live and breathe dispatch. I do this all the time. We don't realize how one-dimensional it's making us. Absolutely, absolutely. Rhonda Kelly, you are amazing, my friend. I could talk to you all day. If people want to reach out with you uh, to you, learn more about you, learn more about All Clear and GMR, where can they find you? Oh, fantastic. So um, 
GMR, I forgot to mention this, found it all clear. So I, I was really impressed with the leadership at GMR recognizing that responders have needs outside the profession. Uh, the best way to reach me is Rhonda at All Clear Foundation, R-H-O-N-D-A at allclearfoundation.org. Uh, our website is allclearfoundation.org. Those are probably the two best ways to reach me. Rhonda Kelly. On Facebook and yeah, you're all over the place and you're doing amazing work. Uh, I respect you so much in your in your career and what you're doing for responders everywhere. You're always welcome back. And I'm Thank sorry. You. And I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to see you because we're in the same state right now. I know. Next time. Next um, time. But, <laughs> Pat, thank you so much for the invite. I always enjoy our conversations. Oh, I yeah. love to see your continued impact in the world and uh, love working together. Yeah, I love it too, Rhonda. Until next time, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Such an amazing guest, Rhonda Kelly. If you love the show, head over to the CJ Evolution Podcast YouTube channel. Until next time, everybody, please be safe.